Welcome to episode 92, Hey White Therapist, Here's Where We Start, featuring Frank Baird, licensed marriage and family therapist and licensed professional clinical counselor. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. We are coming out with this free CE podcast in response to what's been going on in our country recently. And I've invited Frank Baird, who's a dear colleague of mine. Frank is a licensed marriage and family therapist and a licensed professional clinical counselor. And one of his specializations is with race relations. Um, I know that the topic of working in therapy with people of color is a very sensitive and loaded one. And I can think of no one better than to spend this time with to shed some light on this topic. Um, Frank, thank you for joining us, uh, especially right now. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, So Frank, why don't you take a minute and tell us a little bit about how um, you came to have this particular specialization. Tell us about you and then let's kind of jump right into this because I know we need to cover a lot in this hour we have ahead of us. So I, I tend to be interested in a lot of things and volunteer for a lot of things. And I was uh, working at an organization that at the time I didn't notice was predominantly white. We had a new person in charge, a new lead teacher a new executive director, if you will, of the organization, who was a person of color and was interested in um, making the organization more uh, diverse and inclusive. And so asked me as a white person if I would be willing to start a white affinity group or talking with um, white folks about um, our racial identity Uh, This particular organization at the same time also started what was called a people of color and their allies meeting where um, so people of color and white folks would come together and start talking and exploring these ideas, these issues, these concerns. Um, And then this white affinity group was white people getting together in a space that uh, the intention was to be safe to talk about what it means to be white. Um, and, and a place where we could do it without fear of hurting a person of color with our uh, unskillful language or our uh, ignorance, but also a place with other white people where um, we could validate one another's um, fears and concerns, but also being acknowledging that the reason this is upsetting to us is because we don't want to be racist. We don't want to be causing harm to people of color. And um, at least the people who came to these groups, who tend to come to these groups, aren't doing it intentionally. But people were afraid, are worried, or learning that there was a lot of unintentional harm um, resulting from uh, whiteness. And so they wanted to do that differently. They wanted to make a difference. Um, Right now, as you talk about this, I'm sure so many of our listeners are nodding. I have seen social media, of course, lit up on the topic um, of race relations and the murder of George Floyd. And I've seen so many um, white therapists say, I don't know where to start. I I just feel bad and I don't want to make it worse. And I'm scared and I'm, I'm, I I want to help, but I don't know where to start. And 
my hope in us having this conversation is to offer some guidance and clarity so that we have just the the very first step in what is a I think a scary conversation and I'm glad that you used that word um, because I think many of us are uneasy because we know it's really bad. We have no idea what it's like for a person of color and we don't want to make a bad situation worse. Um, so Frank, if I can tell me kind of your perspective, let's start by using the, the really heavy words. We're just going to dive right in. Talk to me about white privilege. Tell me about what that is and why we really need to be aware of it. So I think uh, there are a number of things. One is a lot of the words that are used to to describe race relations are really scary. And part of that is because one of the things that happens when we're talking about privilege, and I'll, and I'll define it in just a moment, but when we're talking about privilege um, and racism, we're talking about systems, societal systems. So those systems are not our fault individually. But one of the things about whiteness and one of the things about American ideology is we really focus on individuality. And so what happens is a lot of people are very reactive to these terms because they take, they mistake terms to describe a system as it's my personal, it's my personal fault. And so racism is not my fault and being the beneficiary of white privilege is not my fault. And, right, notice I said and instead of but, and what is my responsibility is once I know the effects of whiteness, once I know the presence of racism, how it operates, then my responsibility is to my own ethics, right? What kind of person do I want to be? What kind of society do I want to be a part of? What kind of contributor to humanity do I want to be just by my existence? So the idea of white privilege that, again, is like a trigger word for a lot of people, but white privilege is simply uh, pointing to um, our cultural conditioning. So in America, I'll talk specifically about this in America because it's different in certain parts of the world. But in America, white privilege means essentially like the simplest part of it is it means that I don't have to worry that my race, my racial identity is going to be a problem anywhere. There's a, an inventory, a white privilege checklist. And in this checklist, um, you know, are things like uh, I can meet with a group of my uh, people of my race easily, or I can uh, go to um well, we can't do it right now because of the pandemic, but I can go to the store and security doesn't follow me. Or if I try to write a check, um, nobody is suspicious. So things like this are, uh, you know, I didn't ask for it. I'm grateful. I may not even be grateful though, right? Because these are the kinds of things we can take for granted. So they're kind of invisible to us. They're part of our conditioning that we don't have to notice because it just works for us. However, one of the things that happens is people of color who are not the beneficiaries of the same conditioning, of the same positioning in society, they notice these things. And so then one of the things that happens is they're often calling it out intentionally or unintentionally. And then often what's happening is white people are going, but I didn't mean to. And and so really, there's kind of a, a, a mismatch in what's being talked about. 
uh, so many white people, again, they take it as an individual um, accusation or my individual responsibility instead of I'm pointing out how you are in a system and that you got you got the good end of the of the system. Unconsciously, these things can continue to happen so that it's really important for us white folk to, I think, listen to people of color and to listen to their complaints and start with the assumption that they're legitimate, right? Don't do the yeah, but all of us as therapists are familiar, we're familiar with the yeah, but listen, because that is a tremendous um, act of uh, kindness and compassion. And then in our efforts to try to understand, not try to explain away, right? Say, this is, this is not what you experienced, right? I don't know if you've ever had anybody tell you that you didn't have the experience you have. People don't respond well to that. So, so one of the things that can help us white people be the kind of people we want to be in the world. So by that, I mean, I'm not talking to people who have specific racist ideologies, right? Uh, white supremacist ideologies. I'm talking about all, all of us white folk who are the beneficiaries of white privilege, of the dominant culture being white, influenced and um, dominated primarily by white values from, uh, from Europe, um, that one of the reasons we get triggered so easily is because we don't want to be racist. We don't want this to be true right? Racists don't get pissed off that we call them racist, right? They get pissed off about other things, but all of, there are lots and lots of nice white folk who don't want to be racist. And then unfortunately our reaction are being triggered by that, by taking it personally, um, that I'm a racist rather than I like this language. I'm under the influence of racism or I'm under the influence of whiteness right? That then what happens is there's a mismatch on what we're trying to do. And then everybody just gets pissed off, right? The people of color get pissed off because white people are doing that white people thing. And the white people are getting pissed off because people of color are always so angry and upset. And there are reasons for both of those, but that doesn't help us get anywhere, which is why I think as therapists, we're positioned and we have a great opportunity to, to make a difference, but so many therapists are reluctant to try for a couple of reasons. One is when you're white, it's a really scary thing to start to take this on. It's really, really scary. The other thing is that a lot of us in our training as therapists feel like we're not supposed to bring, I'm doing air quotes now around the word politics and, or the politics of identity into the consultation room. And my argument would be uh, uh, around the politics or the politics of identity in the consultation room is we cannot not do our work without those being there. They're there. And so it's actually better for us to, um, to reveal it or out it or be willing to talk about it um, because if we're willing to talk about it, then depending, if we're talking about it with the right people, right? Sort of a matched temperament or matched interest or, or whatever. Um, if we're willing to talk about it, we can get someplace other than where we are right now. As you're talking about this, I can hear that it's an invitation to bring it into the room, to bring it into 
our lives and for us as white people, as part of the majority to actually confront it. And that especially now, but never, we've never really been able to sidestep it. And the importance of us being willing um, and able to, I guess, lean in to the discomfort in order to use ourselves um, more effectively with clients. It sounds like in your, even your experience um, personally was trying to better understand your impact as a cisgender straight white male and how that might be affecting clients in their work with you. Yes. Yeah. I had this interesting experience where, um, so this organization where I was asked to facilitate these white affinity groups in this organization, one of the things that would happen is it's an organization. um, So it was a, a, a religious or spiritual organization and, you know, people would come in, right. They'd be like new to showing up to one of the offerings of the group. And I'm a, a, a shy person. I'm really good at like, if you come to me and you ask me things, I can talk <laughs> or if I'm doing a presentation, but you know, just as a person showing up in the world, I tend to be pretty shy. And so I would sit there and be pretty quiet and people would come in. And if I knew somebody, you know, I do that thing we all do, which is nod to them or like go cling to them because I knew them. And anybody I didn't know or was uncomfortable with, I, you know, I wasn't ignoring them. I was just going, I'm shy. It's okay if I don't make contact with them. And so that's one of the ways I had this this thing about me that was very individualized, right? It's my shyness. But then in these people of color and their allies meetings, one of the things that became apparent to me is that I'm, you know, from my experience, this is how I'm describing or living this phenomena. But if you're a person of color and you walk into a room and there's a thing that often people of color do, they call head counting, right? They walk into the room and they see how many other people of color are there. And, um, and, and so they come in. And so here I am from that perspective, another white guy who's not saying welcome, who's not saying, I'm glad to see you, who's not saying I'm happy you're here. I'm thinking all those things. <laughs> But this person or these people don't know it. And so one of the effects of that is it really helped me because I respond well to like the, the, the political implication of this. It's like I became less shy, right? It was a really nice intervention for overcoming shyness. But um, uh, I, I, it started to feel compelling to me to greet people when they were coming in, right? It's not my job, but it felt compelling because I wanted to I wanted them to come into that space and, and, and it was two parts. One is be, feel welcome in the space, but also not see me as being unfriendly or, you know, in our, in our some of us in our, in our profession, call it projecting, right? Having somebody see me and go, oh, there's another white guy. And you know how white guys are. So I am another white guy and I am a lot like a lot of white guys are because that's inescapable, right? I think that's part of one of the things we're afraid of is that somebody's going to notice I'm white. Oh, well, I am, right? But like, we're afraid somebody's going to notice something about me that I don't know about me. And that's always scary. So I took it as, okay, so I'm just going to try these things. And, and, and again, right now, you know, I survived them. So I'll say that, but they are so scary to do. And they're so worthwhile. 
Because one of the things that happens is we get liberated from our own constraints, right? When I think about, I, so I teach some mindfulness classes. And one of the things I think about mindfulness that what it gives us is we've got our conditioned behavior. And that means either everything we do or our reactivity to things is all automatic. There's no free choice in that. It's all conditioning. But mindfulness gives us a moment of awareness where we can do the conditioning or we can do something different. And when I think about the effects of whiteness, the conditioning that comes to me from whiteness or the effects of racism or white supremacy in America, the conditioning I got around that, I am really, really grateful. It's unpleasant to discover you know, how conditioned I am but I am really, really grateful to be aware of it and to have the opportunity to root it out, to have the opportunity to not be that kind of person. I appreciate that you shared kind of your experience of this um, because it is, like you said, such a different experience for everybody. And then being able to reflect on, okay, this is my lived experience. I'm shy in this room, but recognizing that to somebody else, how that shyness can be taken. Yeah. It, it has a whole different meaning. Um, right now, as we are recording this, there are protests across the country. Um, I think all of us unfortunately anticipate that this is going to continue for a while because this conversation needs to be had and people are very, very, very angry and they should be. When we have ourselves as white therapists, how do we even start to have this conversation with our clients of color? I mean, I know for myself, one of my very first internships as a therapist, so I'm like Frank, I'm also white, I'm cisgender. And I, um, my very first internship was working with inner city gang affiliated youth in Los Angeles. And the majority of my clients were not white. And it was, it was, a, a, obviously a very different cultural experience for me and being aware of how much I didn't know. And I think that's part of the fear right now. How do you recommend that therapists start to tackle that? Because I mean, let's, let's face it. We don't have time to sit on our laurels. We need to help people right now. We need to do our best to not make it worse. So how do therapists start having this conversation with themselves and then with their clients? Yeah, I, I, I appreciate the with themselves part because that feels like that's where it starts, right? We start uh, uh, questioning you know, in our head. Right. Like the, I think of this as sort of the sequence. I start exploring things in my head and then I start saying things and then I start doing things. Um, and, and so the, the place to start in our head is, is, um, recognizing the benefit of, um, of being willing to talk about it. So it's scary. So one is being willing to be scared and do it anyway. Um, and, uh, and, and I think one of the things that happens is you'll see what a big difference it makes both for you and for, uh, for clients. So like one of the things, you know, so I, I live in an area where there were fires recently, well, a lot of fires and not just recently, but one of the things we would do is people in the community would say, um, how are you doing? Have you been affected by the fire? 
And if somebody had been affected by the fire, they would let them talk about the fire. Like the therapist would acknowledge this is something that's important to talk about. Whether this is, you know, the focus of our therapy or not, in this moment, this needs to be the conversation. And a lot of times, what we think of as white people is, okay, so a black man, so I'm going to say some of this language because this is the thing that we miss often as white people. Another black man died by the hands of the police for whatever reason, right? But another black man died in another state far away from me and far away from my client. So I don't even need to think about about it when I go uh, to talk with my client. I'll use another example of a far away thing. So some of us are old enough. Well, I guess all of us, if we're therapists, are old enough to, to remember 9-11, right? So that happened in New York and it had resonating effects um, throughout the country, right? People who knew people there or people who knew people who knew people in New York. And we thought to ask about it, right? Were you affected by this? And to let the person talk about how they were affected by it. And so often, especially as white therapists, we don't think when a person of color comes in to ask, you know, uh, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on right now. Another black man was shot by white police. Is that having an effect on you? Or how are you with that? Some of us white therapists are afraid to ask that because we don't know what to do beyond that first question, right? Like what's gonna happen? Um, uh, and, and some of us don't ask just because we don't even think about it, right? It's just like, oh yeah, there was another incident. Um, but it makes a huge difference in terms of the uh, potentially beneficial effect it has on your client for having the opportunity to talk about how they're being affected by it either directly or I don't know that I would say this is indirect, but you know, it's like, I, I think of directly, like I knew, I knew him or I knew um, people who knew him, but it still has a direct effect going. Another black man was killed by a white police officer. Um, but then the other thing I think of is it helps um, make it possible for you and that client to um, have a better relationship where um, more kinds of conversations are possible and they're like more depth, more dimension, more topics for conversation are possible. Uh, and that as a therapist, I always like that. I like it when clients trust me or feel like they can talk to me. You know, I, I see I see clients a lot. Uh, uh, so I do a, a variety of kinds of therapy. But one of the kinds of therapy I do is I work with transgender folk. And, and they come to see me and they say they can have conversations with me they couldn't have with another therapist. Um, either because the therapist just didn't ask or the therapist didn't know. And I think you know, here's a sort of often what we call in clinical settings, you know, a specialty population. But it would help if we, I guess if we had to use that term, <laughs> I don't like it, um, but if we thought of people of color as a specialty population that we need to, in order to provide good care, culturally competent care, we need to know that it's important to ask about these things and to listen and to talk about these things. In the way you phrased one of those questions, so, um, so 
I'm a university professor, and I remember at some training at some point, someone saying, instead of asking your students, um, do you have any questions? Ask your students, what questions do you have? Yeah. And make the assumption that they have questions and open up the safety immediately that it's like, it's okay, you do. So let's talk about them. And I caught your language and what you said of how has this affected you? Not did it, but how has it? And this assumption that it has. um, And you, Frank, you and I live in the same area with these wildfires that are now known for our part of Southern California. Um, and it's affected all of us. If Whether we were evacuated or we had lost a home, it wasn't if it had, it was how it had. Yeah. And right now, I appreciate that angle of how has this affected you? Because it's the assumption that it couldn't not have. And I, I want to invite you for a moment to speak on vicarious trauma and explaining kind of what the uh, perspective we as therapists need to have in conceptualizing how it is that someone who's in our office, it's a person of color, can ha- be having such a profound reaction to something that happened on the other side of the country. Um, it, it I've seen that term go around on social media the last few days. It goes around many times. But can you speak to this specifically in terms of race and vicarious trauma and why this matters and why we need to be having this conversation? You know, so if you're working with uh, anybody who's traumatized, something happened in the past that has ongoing effects, right? So if you're talking about PTSD, they've got um, flashbacks or intrusive memories or intrusive thoughts. Um, They're avoiding certain things. And so we go, you know, if you were sexually assaulted or if you were in a car accident, um, we, we readily acknowledge that. One of the things we're not so good at acknowledging are things like generational trauma, um, uh, the ongoing effects of um, uh, slavery in America and how the effects of that last for white people and for people of color. Um, You know, it wasn't that long ago. You know, we feel like, uh, depending on how old you are, um, we feel like that was a long time ago. That was like not just last century. It was the century before last, except there were still a lot of um, really hideous laws uh, in places as very recently, but like the middle of the last century. Um, So one of the things is uh, recognizing and acknowledging generational trauma. And part of that is sometimes the reason the trauma is being triggered now is because there's something similar, right? So that's kind of like, there's this person yelling at me and it uh, triggers reminders of being yelled at by my parents. But one of the things here is, Uh, it's white people acting in sadly very predictable ways very consistently. And so, you know, one of the things people said around 9-11 is like, you know, nothing like that has happened in America or I didn't expect anything like that would happen in America. Um, What you hear people of color say a lot is that this has always been going on in America. The America that people of color experience is really different than what white people experience. So that it happened, you know, how, however far away, however many miles away, 
part of the reason that can be triggering is because all of the conditions are the same for that to happen here. Some of you may remember the the what happened after the incident with Rodney King here in Los Angeles, right? And I remember uh, white people were saying riots were happening, similar to what they're saying now, right? Riots are happening. And people of color were saying things like it's an uprising, right? That it's riots, uh, you know, people use the word like thug or these other ways of othering the people who are upset about this because it's an injustice. And and then, you know, we end up focusing on, the, well, somebody broke into Target and the injustice of that instead of, well, the, the precipitating cause of all of this was the injustice of yet another white cop killing a black man. So the idea that the trauma, I mean, in some ways, I'd like to take away the word vicarious, right? I mean, I get that, you know, especially clinically, the the distinction that's there. But I think, unfortunately, one of the things that happens is when we use it, like in race relations, often that word is used to minimize the effect that the trauma is having generational trauma, right? It's like, well, you, you know, that happened to your grandparents, right? We talk about the generational trauma and, and, and white people for the most part are able to appreciate the generational trauma that came from um, the, uh, uh, the Holocaust, right? And, and even as clinicians, we'll, we'll be able to talk about, oh yeah, I see the multi-generational transmission of, you know, whatever it is. But then we start talking about race and we just sort of like, oh, yeah, well, you know, slavery was a long time ago or Jim Crow was a long time ago. And you know, people of color will say, you know, it's not over yet. It's still happening. The conditions are still there that put them at risk. So somebody being shot far away is like, that could be me. That could be my son. That could be my brother. That could be my dad. That could be. You know, somebody gets pulled over uh, uh, for some uh, allegedly routine traffic incident and gets shot in the car. That could happen anywhere to anyone. And it's more likely to, right? So, so you know, then a, a lot of times white people go, could happen to anyone and they leave it at that. But people of color know it's more likely to happen to them. They are at greater risk. They're, there's more danger for them than for us. I appreciate your use of the word other, you know, that we can use these terms to create otherness and to not um, really see the humanity in what we're talking about. Because when we're talking about trauma, the fact of the matter is that pretty much every single one of us has had some kind of trauma and that some movie scene or some smell or some comment by a neighbor or whatever it is, is suddenly going to bring us back to it. And yeah, we, you can use the term of like vicarious, you know, basically it's something, something brought it back and brought it to the forefront. And that's something that I think we can all relate with. And maybe that's part of why it's so scary to talk about it, because I think for some of us, we grasp on some level, simply how profound this is when you talk about things like slavery and Jim Crow and we go, oh my, I've never experienced anything. I don't know what that's like. I have no idea and I don't know how to relate to it. But this idea that it that we can minimize our otherness by recognizing that we are the same in it, in the experience of being traumatized and trying to connect 
through that trauma and understand that maybe it's something we haven't experienced ourselves, but trauma is trauma, pain is pain, suffering is suffering. Yeah. Yeah. I think how often, um, I don't know if this is an artifact of uh, Western academia or, or or something else, but, you know, like, like it's important and helpful to have distinctions like vicarious trauma or I guess by comparison, you'd say primary trauma. Um, but I think in talking with clients, right, and their lived experience, I want to be close to their experience and I don't want my language to distance me. So if I call it vicarious, you know, it's going to be like, sometimes people go big T trauma and little t trauma, right? And it's like, we're, if you're using the word trauma, you're talking about trauma. I think that's a really important point that what we're talking about fundamentally is trauma and how could it not be? If you think about it, so um, uh, there was a um, like a shocking book I read. It's called um, Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present. It's by Harriet Washington. And, um, you know, there's there's talk like, you know, doctors will talk about how uh, people in the black community are reluctant to go see doctors, you, you know, and, 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 and what we end up doing is individualizing it, right. Or saying like, well, we other, right. Those people are like that. And one of the things that was astounding to me in reading this book is, I don't know if you ever watched the, uh, the TV show, the X-Files, the X-Files were like all these weird scientific experiments, you know, all the uh, dystopian horror stories about the government experiments and all this other stuff. You read American Apartheid and it's like, that's actually happened in American history to black folk, right? That, that um, they were experimented on by, uh, sometimes by the government, sometimes by others. Um, you know, the whole idea about, um, I forget what they call it when they would measure the uh, size of the skull as a, as a, um, a way of determining intelligence or some of the rationalizations that people would use like, uh, uh, black people are tougher than white people. That's why we can treat them so badly as slaves. They can tolerate pain better than white people. Or, uh, there was a community where they infected a lot of the community with, um, I don't remember if it was a virus. I, I just think of the word virus all the time because I'm not a doctor, but they infected them and then studied the effects of that. The, you know, they did, they did it on purpose. And so I go, wow, that, you know, that part's, unconscious um, racism is bad enough, but that stuff is like, you know, amped up and deliberate where it's like, you're othering these people. They're less than human. They're subhuman. We can do this to them because they're other. They're not us. They're them. And, and so I read that book and then, and then in the book, they, they've got some like recent things. I think um, the seventies, which I was born in the 50s. So the 70s wasn't that long ago. I'm going, this stuff was happening just pretty recently. And that's just what got put into a book. Who knows what else is going on in the world, right? So you think about, you know, trauma, we often think of trauma as like this specific incident happened. You know, I got in this car accident or this series of incidents happened. I, you know, I was sexually abused, um, you know, over this period of time when you have a, like a hostile environment and, and, you know, that thing about intermittent reinforcement, right? It, maybe it only happened once, but it could happen again anytime, 
right? And that's more terrifying than going, it's going to happen on this day at this time, right? So it could happen at any time. It could happen to anyone. So that means me or anybody I care about um, just because of the color of my skin. So this topic that we're discussing as two white people, what makes us qualified to have this conversation? And, and I want to bring this up because one of the things that happens in marginalized populations is, and you already talked about this, is like basically the pressure is on them to educate the other part of the population on how to not do the thing. That's something that I can relate with as a woman that it's like, I, I wish I didn't have to explain why that comment wasn't okay yeah. or why touching me that way isn't okay. Yeah. Um, and and then there's this pressure. So here we are as two white people talking about this. And I think part of the fear as being a white person is like, I'm not qualified to talk about this because I, I don't want to say something because I don't know. I have no idea what it's like. Um, how do you recommend white people start talking about this amongst themselves? Like in, you know, in, I would say in the hallway, but we don't have hallways because everybody is working in the corner of their bedrooms right now. But when we're talking with our colleagues, um, how do we engage in this conversation? What kind of language we do use? How do we start it? Because I think part of it is that we're, we're just so afraid of making it worse that we shy away from it when we need to ally. They need us. We are the change, not them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, you know, I think of a couple of things. One is, um, this is a pretty common phrase for m most um, marginalized groups, right? It's like, have you heard of Google? Uh, so you start by doing some research, right? Not asking somebody to uh, represent their people. Um, but, you know, a lot of us do that. And especially therapists will do that because we're used to asking questions, right? Where we, you know, in some ways we feel entitled to ask questions. So then we just start asking those questions and we don't recognize we're asking a person to educate us, right? So I think it's different when I'm listening to somebody's story, right? Which is how I want to relate to clients. I want to listen to their story. I don't want them to educate me. Now, now, I might be using this word differently than some people do, right? Because it's like, well, you're educating me about your experience. But I want to make this distinction between I'm listening to your story and you're telling me what you want to know. And I can have curiosity about your experience. But if what I'm looking for is more knowledge about the, the Black experience or the Native American experience, right, that... Um, uh, not asking this individual to speak on behalf of their people and to do my own research. So one is because I'm one of those people, when I was asked to start facilitating these groups, I still, I've been doing this, I don't know, five years um, uh, around um, whiteness. And I still have a, a, a bad case of imposter syndrome. I, I still feel like, uh-oh, there's there's more that I I should be doing. But I also recognize that it's always going to feel like that because racism still exists. Whiteness is still doing its thing to we white folk, right? So one thing is um, to be careful not to ask people of color to be your encyclopedia or your Google. Um, the other thing is it's really important for white people to talk with white people, which isn't as satisfying as going and helping people of color, 
Right. So there's, I don't know if you're familiar with the the phrase white savior complex. You know, this is often um, used in uh, relation to like the number of white people who will go to Africa to help with um, black babies in African communities um, when there are plenty of black communities in America that could use help. And so there are a variety of things that contribute to that. Um, but the the phrase that they start using is white savior complex, which is, um, it's sort of the equivalent, we've all had a, a, a grandparent or an aunt or uncle who gave us a gift for some holiday that they wanted to give us that we didn't want. They gave it to us because they wanted us to have it, whether we wanted it or not. And, and that's one of the things that often happens. We go, uh-oh, I'm really worried about this. I want to make a difference. So I'm going to go in. And unfortunately, I'm going in with my own ideas, my own limited uh, understanding or education, or even if I've got a lot of education and a lot of understanding, I'm going in with my ideas and not acknowledging that here come my ideas. So for me, right, it would be, so I'm going into a space as a male, right? I worked at a rape crisis center and it was really interesting to me to see how um, men occupied that space differently than women, right? Or now I'm gonna go into a space as a white person and really the experience that people of color often have is I'm gonna tell you all how to do it right. Because we white people think we know it all, um, and especially white men. And part of that's because of the way the English language operates. The assumption is always that you're you're male if you're not specified, and um, and you're white if you're not specified. Um, so one is do do your own research, and the other is do your own research around a white identity. Everything you can know. So I, you know, I, I, I've read a lot, watched a lot of videos. I've talked to a lot of people who, who not in the context of like, please, you know, explain, um, explain your people, but in the context of can, can we have conversations about your life and what it's like for you to live and the things you look forward to, the things you're afraid of. So I think it's really valuable to read a lot of material, watch a lot of material produced by people of color and respect their voice, right? And don't try to uh, change it. And then the other thing is to research a lot of white people talking about their experiences of race. One of the things that is a benefit of white privilege or whiteness is that we don't think of white as a race in part because white people created the category of race as a way of othering people, right? Of, of a way of being superior, which is part of white supremacy, right? We often think of white supremacy as like Nazis and, um, and genocide, and that's certainly a part of it, but it's more subtle but insidious aspects are everything white is better than anything else. Right. You know, it's kind of like white fashion is better than black fashion or Latin fashion or um, white music is better than um, black music or, you know, white people are so much more polite and well mannered than people of color. Right. So these values that have gone unexamined, but that contribute to othering and power positioning. So it's really important for us white folk to research whiteness 
recognize our racial identity and then talk with each other about it and talk in safe. Well, I, I like the word courageous spaces, right? Safe spaces. Sometimes the way to be in a safe space is let's not talk about these things, but these really need to be courageous spaces so that if I'm upset because somebody said, oh, you're crying because another black man was shot. Uh, those are white tears, right? Yeah, they are. They're white tears. There can be more than that. But I need to be able to talk with other people about um, what I'm feeling. Because if what I want to do is overcome whiteness, I need other people to do that. It was not created by us individually. It was created culturally. So to change that, we need to do it together culturally. And we need to do it with each other in ways that so we're not subjecting people of color to our process. We're not asking them or demanding that they witness it or in some ways have to put up, right? Well, like, so if I have white tears about something, right? Not subjecting a person of color to that, right? So that they, once again, cause they'll often say, we have the experience of having to take care of white people all the time. Um, you know, so it's like, you don't have to take care of me. We as therapists are really familiar with, right? The idea of like, I don't want a client to have to take care of me. So if they're telling a, a you know, a, a tragic story and I'm brought to tears, most of us know how to cry with a client in a way that is validating of their experience, not taking away from. But so often what happens around race, this happens in other contexts too, but around race is like, now it's, now it's about me, right? You see this around, uh, th there've been stories about white newscasters who say something and then start crying because people got upset about something that they said and then they're crying and they spend a lot of time talking about me and I didn't mean to do it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the things I would say is that that's really important. I didn't mean to do it, but there's a difference between intent and impact. And one of the things we need to do, I I'm saying we need, I'm, I'm now the commanding voice. One of the things that's helpful to do is to go, I need to acknowledge the impact. What we're usually doing is going, I didn't mean to, and maybe that's true, right? I didn't mean to, but it still had the effect it had. So can I be accountable for that? Can I have conversations with other white folk that are invitations to uh, better understand that, acknowledge it, and, and do things differently? I, me, I use the term to be a better human being, to be more kind and more compassionate. Of all of the things that you said, I mean, so many gems there for me to chew on, and I'm sure for our listeners too, you brought up the word power. And power is such a fundamental part of therapy. You know, kind of therapy 101 is this discussion of the power dynamic between clients and therapist. And this brings me back to the conversation, you know, where we started in the importance of therapists bringing this into the room and asking clients, how do you feel about this? Um, because if we don't, they may not feel like we could tolerate it. Yeah. Um, that that they're afraid that we may make it about us inadvertently. You know, going back to what you just said about intent versus impact. Um, so if we're not um, if we're not courageous and grounded in being able to lean into that conversation to start the conversation, this is all just an extension of the power dynamics that are occurring in the therapy room 
um, before we even talk about race. It's just an inherent thing that happens in therapy. Yeah, they, there's the, a phrase, white fragility, which is a, a, a phrase used around that redirection, right? You're talking about um, uh, harm that was caused to the community of people of color and then the focus gets shifted on, and and the way it's talked about a lot and not inaccurately is, so somebody died, you know, a person of color died, but now we're going to talk about a white person's feelings about that, <laughs> right? So the thing is, in the political context, it's different than like the personal, right? The, our feelings matter. However, when I'm working as a therapist, I don't want my feelings to take center stage. Right. I want the what the client wants to work on, what the client wants to talk about. I want that to be center stage. And I want me to be available to be in a supportive role. And I feel that way in, in terms of um, how I show up culturally. Right. A lot of times, uh, a, a lot of times white people don't like the term white privilege because what they think is we're talking about uh, Jeff Bezos or, you know, some multi-billionaire. Right. Instead of no white privilege means my skin color isn't a problem for me most of the time. Right. It's not even a threat of a problem for me most of the time. That's the privilege. There are other things that are associated with that with that privilege, other um, other benefits. But um, we we need to be we need to be talking about it because that's the only way we can unpack it and change it. So you and I could obviously sit and talk about this for a very long time. And one of the difficulties we have, um, and I'm hearkening back to my early days working, as I said, with gang affiliated youth, um, being, you know, a, a, a young white therapist in an environment that was totally different than my background. This is kind of like the very, very early steps of this conversation. And and I think that's part of what was so important in us having this conversation right now is like, okay, guys, we need to talk about this. And also to establish that what we're talking about is like step number one. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I like that you said, like, we need to do more reading and we need to have these conversations with our white peers and create a, a safe space for ourselves to explore um, it within ourselves these areas of blockage, if you will. Um, yeah. our blind spots that are influencing us, not just in therapy, but in the world at large. Because what I've seen collectively from so many therapists and social workers on social media is like, I want to help and I don't know how. And what I'm taking away from this conversation is like, also some kind of like what not to do, like, don't not talk about it, talk about it, bring it into the room. Yeah. Um, and when you talk about it, don't make it about you or your experience, let it be an, an invitation for the story to be told um, as we as as we would with other trauma. And that I think what I'm hearing too is your experience as a white therapist as well and like being really aware of not taking up the space in the room yeah. and, and that we wouldn't do that about other topics. So we wouldn't do this about this, um, but because we're scared because we don't wanna do it wrong, we tend to shy away from it. Frank, we don't have too much time left um, in in this interview today. And like we've said, this is just such a brief primer on an unbelievably deep and profound topic. What are some other things that you want our listeners to hear of like, hey, you know, here's what you need to keep in mind foundationally as you walk into your sessions today, tomorrow, 
here's what you need to keep in mind. So one is is acknowledge and recognize color. You know, a lot of, uh, there, there was a time, and, and I think a lot of people still think that it's this time that they say, I don't see color. But I, not seeing color erases a lot of the experience that people of color have. So one is acknowledging it, right? So I think it's it's like, I like to start with what's going on in my head because that can be pretty scary, but it doesn't have the same consequences if I say something or I do something. So for me, I think of it as like, let me notice how I'm triggered or my reactivity. And then let me, instead of running away from the reactivity, let me uh, acknowledge it and step forward anyway in um, something that feels safe enough, right? It won't be safe, but safe enough. So. Um, watch uh, some YouTube videos about, there's some great videos that feel pretty safe on um, the history of slavery or the history of racism in America. Um, read some articles. Um, you know, if you like reading books, jump into a book, right? So you can do short format stuff or big format. But I think of it like um, an, a, a rest, sort of like anxiety and exposure therapy, right? So you rest and then you approach it a little bit. And you you find ways to manage the reactivity, the um, arousal in your body. And when you get that down, not by ignoring it, not by running away, not by pretending it's not there, but then you keep working. So start by getting information in your head. All you have to do, all, air quotes around all, right? Um, I was so surprised that when I started reading uh, books, but written by people of color, um, written from other perspectives. I was so surprised. I had no clue in the world, right, about um, so much of their experience. So start with being willing to acknowledge your white racial identity. Oh, I also want to say this. Sadly, the white supremacists, the Nazis and the Ku Klux Klan have like taken all the language, right? Like we can't say white pride, you know, the ways people can say black pride or Latino pride, right? We can't say white pride because the white supremacists co-opted the language. In our heads though, right? The idea is not to not be proud of your racial identity, but part of it is to start to explore and learn to learn because if our racial identity is having effects we don't want it to have on the world, then the only way we can make that different is to learn about it. And uh, I, I, I'm using the word safe because it feel I feel safe when I'm uh, watching a video home alone or you know nobody can see how I'm reacting to it or I'm reading a book and I'm getting upset. You know I can put the book down and then pick it up. But start by exploring and getting information in your head. And then I think of it like um, improv, right? I put all of this, I, I, I immerse myself in all of this. And then what happens is when it comes time to talk or act, it kind of comes from an organic place. Instead of me trying to figure out how to do it right, I'm still going to be worried about doing it right, or at least not causing harm. But I've got all this information and then whatever emerges, emerges right? And it feels like mostly for me, it's been a step in the right direction. Even when I did some things that were totally triggering of shame, <laughs> like not just embarrassment, some things where I was having this like really strong shame reaction, I was still able to go, this is valuable, totally unasked for, but 
this is valuable. So I'm not glad the thing happened, but I'm glad that I'm learning the lesson on such a deep level from the thing that happened. But start with putting information in your head. It's the safest thing. It's the safest place. And start talking with other white people. So in therapy, um, you know, you've already, to kind of recap some of the things you've said, to not put it on a person of color to educate us, for us to take the onus to do that ourselves and to invite the conversation. What are some other things that we can do um, collectively in our field, knowing that our field is inherently based in the support of um, mental health and and equality? I mean, inherently, that, that's part of the root of the field. What are things that white folk can do to use some of that privilege to influence this? Well, one, one of the things is uh, to be willing to, to talk about it or uh, out it in professional settings. You know, so like uh, your, your office working with colleagues or, you know, if you're at like professional function, um, you know, looking and noticing. And if you notice being willing to say something, a lot of times people are reluctant to say something because they don't know what the answer is, right? It's like, oh, I just discovered my organization um, is uh, claims it's, you know, it's just playing lip service to diversity and inclusivity. We're not actually doing anything to try to make our organization more diverse or more inclusive. Right. So sometimes people are reluctant to say something, one, because of the power that's going on, depending on your position in the organization. But the the other is because we feel like we're supposed to offer up an answer. Let me tell you how to fix that. And it's okay not to know the answer because there's not an easy fix. But the good news is if what we all start doing is saying more, then we get to use our collective wisdom. We don't have to do it alone. So if we say it, like sometimes I've been surprised, like, you know, there was this uh, meeting where everybody was going around and they had um, an icebreaker invitation to ask, um, uh, to ask, oh, who, who do you live with? And it got to me. So I'm a heterosexual cisgender male, but I recognize that that question could for some people um, be an invitation or a requirement to out themselves. Right. That um, so I, I just said that I go, well, you know, to I, I use humor a lot. So I said to say this playfully, um, I'm now outed as a heterosexual. Um, but, you know, I, I managed to just sort of highlight that little part of the experience I was having. And, you know, I wouldn't like go say, don't ask that. Or um, I, I mean, sometimes I might do that, but um you don't have to know the answer. All you have to do to start is recognize something is happening and acknowledge it. And then we don't have to do it alone. It can feel like alone, right? You can, there are those organizations that go, all right, what are we supposed to do? And I think it's fair enough to go, I, I don't know, but I think let's talk about it. Let's figure it out together because I can't tell you what to do, but we can figure this out together. I appreciate that guidance. It's like the, that we need to be more courageous in having the conversation. And when we know the, you know, have an inkling of the way to do it, just like you said, using humor to be able to uh, say it, to recognize it, and to bring it out into the open instead of just kind of sidestepping it and walking around and moving on. Because 
you know, that that's part of our privilege, the ability to sidestep it and, and move on. Um, and that we want to work toward the equalization of that. Um, Frank, of course, you and I could talk for a very long time and we need to wrap this up for today. Um, what resources do you recommend for listeners? As we've said, this is just like the, this is the pamphlet version of cultural competence and, um, and acknowledgement of race relations in America. How do we build upon this um, foundational knowledge as we grow as individuals to support a more inclusive society? So there are several things. One is I have some resources on my website people can take advantage of. But the other thing you can do is if you Google what is whiteness, or if you Google phrases like how to overcome racism, you'll get lots and lots and lots of stuff. And, you know, different things resonate with different people. But there are some great uh, organizations doing work. Like in L.A., there's an organization called Aware L.A., uh, so they are both really helpful with like individual personal work, but also if you're interested in, I, I, I always am reluctant to use the word activism because I don't think of myself as an activist, even though I'm active, but you know, the, the combination of like just personal growth type of things to help you as an individual be more aware, but also if you want to do things like um, be one of the, um, you know, some of these uh, marches have white people standing between the police and the people of color because they know that the police will relate differently to white people than to people of color. So um, you can Google those things. You know, there, there are some, Tim Weiss is a really great guy who, uh, a white guy who talks about um, racism and whiteness. Ruth King is a, a woman of color who wrote a book called Mindful of Race. Uh, she is um, spectacular. She does trainings for um, organizations and individuals. And then there's one more book I want to mention. It's called My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menachem. And um, one of the things I like about their book is they, they and Ruth King's book, they talk about uh, everybody needs to do some work, right? So people of color need to do work too. White people need to do a different kind of work and a lot, a lot of it. But one of the things about I really like about the book, uh, My Grandmother's Hands, is that author also includes law enforcement. So he doesn't just other law enforcement is like they are the enemy. He talks about what they can do to overcome this conditioning, acknowledging that it's none of our fault. It's conditioning. But we can be responsible once we know what's going on and start educating ourselves. So those are just a couple of resources, but there's a, you know, um, you Google those phrases like whiteness or overcoming racism, lots and lots of opportunities. Thank you, Frank. And um, please, for our listeners, share your email and also your website. You mentioned that you have a resource um, list there. What's your website? So my website is frankbaird.com. So it's F-R-A-N-K-B-A-I-R-D. And there is a link. If you go to the Mindful of Whiteness link at the bottom of that page, there's a tab for resources. 
And then there's a long list of some of the resources I've used in some of the classes that I've taught, and then just resources that people send me. So, you know, it's like I read a book and I go, this is great. And I put it up there. Um, there's also an invitation for anything you have that you find has been valuable, send it to me and I'll, and I'll put it up there. So it's a lot of lists and um, links to people, organizations and materials. Wonderful. And your email is frank at frankbaird.com. Is that right? frankbaird at frankbaird.com. I think it's funny that I put my last name there. Like there's going to be another Frank at frankbaird.com. But it's frankbaird at frankbaird.com. Thank you so much, Frank. Um, you shed light on this topic in a way that feels um, grounded and more secure. And I appreciate you spending this time to share your experience and help um, shed a little bit of light on this path as we all work to do better. Thank you. Thank you for having me and having this important conversation. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.